This morning we are going to um, continue in our series of messages that we've been looking at as to why we do what we do on Sunday mornings. Before I do, I just want to acknowledge uh, the help that um, the Lord has provided. Uh, last couple weeks, people have stepped in the pulpit um, to uh, bring you the Word of God. I'm so appreciative of Charlie uh, being willing to take on a big task of uh, preaching, and I can speak of him because he's not here this morning. Um, but I'm um, just really uh, appreciative of him uh, taking that step. And if you haven't listened, if you missed that message, um, then uh, please... Um, uh, listen to it. I think it's uh, very edifying, and um, hopefully he can um, encourage him to do uh, more and study the Word and bring us bring that to us. And then Scott, last week, Scott Burdett, who is here uh, visiting and just bringing us the Word, encouraging us uh, to greater uh, just uh, trust in uh, the Lord's uh, plan and, and seeing his uh, seeing what he does in, in the great act of uh, forgiving us uh, such great a debt. Anyway, it's so so wonderful to have um, faithful men to be able to step in the pulpit and uh, to continue preaching the word even uh, when I'm away. And um, yeah, last week I was here, but it gave me a, a full week of, uh, of vacation, so it was great to, to have those men step in. Well, let's turn to the word of God in prayer and ask for his help for this time. Our Lord, our God, we have come to the portion of our service where we want to hear from you. Lord, we want to hear from your word. We want to hear your Spirit, speak to us through your word, and we need you to do that. And Lord, I just ask that you, for your help to make things clear and uh, as I need to do, uh, but also help us, Lord, to listen and to listen clearly and to listen, Lord God, so that we hear your authority in the word. And based on that authority, Lord, we just ask for your help of your Holy Spirit to be submissive to your word and Lord, that our minds would be transformed by your word and that you would conform us greater and greater into the likeness of Jesus Christ, our Lord, through that. Help us this morning to continue to worship you through the preaching of your word. It's your name we pray. Amen. Well, this morning, uh, as Scott announced earlier, and as you see in your bulletin, we're going to be looking at the, the question, Church, why must men preach the scriptures to us? And again, this is a, uh, another installment in the series on why we do what we do on Sunday mornings. And just to give you an idea, um, this, uh, this topic will continue till next week. So I'm going to split this into two parts because of its uh, importance and because of the pervasiveness um, in uh, churches today to ignore what scriptures or to explain away what scriptures um, teach. But then uh, after that, I'll be doing a, like a summary message of the whole series, bringing that together for us. Uh, and then um, after that, I'll be launching into the book of 1 John. So if you want to be um, reading ahead, you can be reading uh, the epistle of 1 John in preparation for that. But this morning, we're going to be looking at the topic of why must men preach the scriptures to us. Now, unless you've been living under a rock or willfully ignorant of the times in which we live, you've probably heard about at least one church, if not many, hiring a woman to be their pastor and to do the preaching and teaching, or maybe to be co-pastor, and uh, they sometimes come on stage with their husbands to uh, explain and teach the scriptures. There are so many churches today who have 
or, or in the process of embracing this trend that it's no longer really shocking to us. Uh, the, the cultural revolution, the sexual revolution has, has got to such shocking terms that this is no longer even um, shocking to us. Most of us could name at least one female preacher on the national scene. And perhaps some of you know uh, churches closer to us. Um, and, and this whole trend of, of having women as uh, preachers and teachers, as pastors, isn't just happening in traditionally liberal areas. It's happening in some churches in traditionally conservative areas, like our own beloved Medina. There are churches here who have embraced women as preachers and pastors. What do the scriptures have to say about that? I mean, what is going on here? Is the trend toward embracing women preachers and teachers something to embrace or something to shun? Are these women preachers really called by God to teach and preach to the church, even becoming pastors of the local churches? Or is there something sinister going on? Has Satan pulled the wool over people's eyes and deceived churches like he did Eve? In Romans chapter 12, verse 2, the Apostle Paul commands us to not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. So I ask you, does the trend toward more and more churches embracing women preachers and teachers represent a transformation into greater conformity with the will of God, or... Does it represent an area where the church is being conformed by the world in defiance of God's will? That's really the question before us. Now, over, over 15 years ago, one faithful pastor warned his congregation by saying this, quote, Every single force in our culture is driving us away from thinking biblically about gender roles, unquote. I say it again. Every single force in our culture is driving us away from thinking biblically about gender roles. Now, now think about that. That was, that was said 15 years ago before there was any such things as uh, all these labels and uh, so-called sexual genders that have uh, popped up over the scene over the last just a few years, let alone 15 years. So that, that statement is as true today as it was then. We need not be fooled into thinking that somehow the world has declared a ceasefire against God's authority. It hasn't, and neither has Satan. We would be foolish to let our guard down ideologically um, to Satan's attacks, which are ever so destructive upon our own lives, our families, as well as our churches. The Apostle Peter warns us in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 9, to be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Now the stakes couldn't be higher. Either women are preachers and teachers are of the Lord for the church's good, or they are part of Satan's strategy for the church's harm. These are in dire contrast to one another. Either something's of the Lord or something's of Satan. So how can we make a decision about this? Well, remember the Lord has given us everything we need for life and godliness. Remember also that the psalmist affirmed 
that, that, the, that the word of God, the Bible, is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. And so, as we have done with other topics and, and uh, controversial issues of which we have looked at, we must turn to God's word. And a faithful study of the word of God will guide us to the light we need to understand why our church must have biblically qualified men to preach the scriptures to us. So church, why must men preach the scriptures to us? Before I delve into the, the scriptures themselves, I, I want to set a background for you. I, I want to provide a, a foundation or a framework, if you will, that we need to keep in mind in answering questions like this because they are controversial, they are uh, culturally charged, and, and they have been misconstrued as well as uh, much harm has been done as people twist the scriptures either on one side of the equation or the other. So premise one is this. God gives men and women equal value. God gives men and women equal value. Whatever, whatever um, answer we come up with, we must always remember that this is not a question of value. This is not a question of who's superior God created both men and women in his image. Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. You can turn there or just listen as I read. Genesis chapter 1, verses, verses 26 and 27 say this. Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air, birds of the sky, and over the cattle and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female. He created them. Now, we could do a whole message on what is the image of God, but, but for the moment, let's just understand that the image of God, whatever it is, has been indelibly placed upon God's creation, specifically upon men and women. It's really what distinguishes us between the animal kingdom and humanity. It's not blood, it's not life, it's not reproduction, it's the image of God. Now the image of God was marred by the fall of man as Adam and Eve sinned against God. That image was marred, but it was never erased. Even uh, in the many Years after Adam and Eve, as the world plunged into sin, so much so that by Genesis uh, 6, the Lord is ready to judge the world because of uh, the corruption, just how sin had um, so escalated to the point that God was prepared to, to wipe them out, except for just a few known as family. But after that flood, listen, God said to Noah, this is in Genesis chapter 9, verse 6, Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. Why? For in the image of God he made man. This isn't just talking about male here. This is talking about male and female. This is talking about mankind or humankind. So after the Lord judges the earth, rescues Noah and his family, just a few, he gives this Admonition, because of what had been going on before. There was the shedding of blood. Men were killing men. Probably women were killing women. And, and all sorts of evil was going on before. And the Lord judged the world. And he's giving Noah this mandate. That whoever sheds man's blood, 
by man shall his blood be shed. In other words, the government, as skeletal as it was at that time, was to um, carry out capital punishment on the person who shed man's blood, who killed a man or a woman. And the reason for it was based in the image of God. So that image of God, even after the fall, even though marred, was still so clear in God's mind that he based uh, his command for capital punishment uh, upon that image. And so we need to think about that in, um, in our own times and realize that men and women are inherently equal in value because their value comes not from what they do or what they look like or their vocation, but their value comes from God's image, which is indelibly inscribed upon them by their creator. This is true for the issue of uh, uh, pro-life. It's, it's one of the reasons we argue that life begins at conception, that even a young child needs life, needs to be protected while in the mother's womb. But it's also the reason why we can say that men and women are of equal value. There's not a superior sex. One is not superior to the other in value or importance. And so often the discussion about whether women should preach and teach or not delves into that. There's accusations that if you say no to that equation, that somehow you're uh, causing women to take an inferior role or you're trying to suppress women from uh, their God-given place within the church or the value that uh, they uh, think that they have by doing that. So God created both men and women in his image, and that's really our value before him, is that, is that image. God declares also that both men and women to be sinners in need of salvation. Now, the the fall didn't take away the uh, image of God, but it did mar it, and that marring came with a price. That sin came with a price. Romans 3.23 tells us that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That, that all, again, I just want to emphasize, that's all men, all women. Right? There's not one of us that can claim a leg up, that can claim we're superior, that can claim we don't need Christ. Men as well as women need a Savior. And that Savior is Christ the Lord. And, and God gave both men and women one Savior, Jesus Christ. There's not a Savior for the women and a Savior for the men. There's one Savior, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 5 and 6 tell us that there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony given at a proper time. You see all the commonalities that are flowing together here. So both men and women are sinners. Both men and women have one Savior. And God saves both men and women by that same means, which is faith in Jesus Christ. Romans 10 tells us that there is no distinction. Here they say between, God says between Jew and Greek, but you could also add in there male or female. There's no distinction. For the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call upon Him. For whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Now when it says that there's no distinction, it doesn't mean there's not differences between men and women. That would be silly. Paul is not saying there aren't differences between Jew and Greek. Paul is not arguing that the Jews need to become Greeks and do away with their Jewish heritage. Nor is he arguing that the Greeks need to become Jews. 
There are profound differences between Jews and Greeks, but he's saying there's one Lord of all. So in the same way, we can, we can think this thing through with men and women and say there's, there's no... There's, there's one means of salvation. There is no distinction. That all who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Uh, just as we would affirm in Ephesians chapter 2, that where Paul says that by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. So if, if faith is a gift, we can acknowledge that God gives that gift to men equally to women. Right? There is no distinction. Also note that God adopts both men and women into his family through faith in Jesus Christ. All this flows together and it's a process. John chapter 1 verses 12 and 13 tell us, But as many as received him, to him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor the will of flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. So as men and women come to a realization that they are sinners in need of a Savior and come to acknowledge Jesus Christ as that Savior that he, that, of Him who died on their behalf, and they come to that realization by faith, the Lord makes them children of God. There's not like children in one tier and children in another tier. Men and women are children of God, co-heirs with Christ. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 5 tells us that God predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. And it's using that term generically to talk about our adoption as children through Jesus Christ to himself through the kind intention of his will. Galatians chapter 4 verses 3, and se- 3 through 7 tell us that while we were children, we were held in bondage under the elemental things of this world. But when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Therefore you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. So we just, we see how how the Lord adopts those who were previously his enemies, those who are previously spiritually dead, he makes them alive and, and draws them into his family through faith in Jesus Christ. So again, there's, there's equal, the, the equality spiritually between men and women ring out through all of this. So God gives all equal standing before him. Uh, Galatians 3.28 is a passage that is typically and often rallied to the defense of people who support the fact that women should be able to preach and teach in the church. Galatians 3.28, Paul says this, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free man, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now looking at the context of that verse, we, we realize that Paul is, is not at all uh, dealing with the issue of whether... Um, Paul is not dealing with the issue of whether women should be uh, taking on public ministries within the church or preaching or teaching. Paul is saying there that, that there is, in, in, in regards to salvation, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free man, there is neither male nor female. It's similar to the argument we saw before in the other passage of Scripture where he's saying that it, before Christ, there's, there's not like two ways of salvation, one for the Jews, one for the Greeks, one for the slaves, one for the free man, 
one for the male, one for the female. He's not saying there are tiers of salvation or that, that those who are saved uh, rank into importance, uh, Jews being more important uh, and then the Greeks or anything like that. He's saying you're all one. Christ has broken down those barriers that stood in the way of their fellowship previously. And, and we understand why this is. Why is it that, that both the Jew and the Greek, the slave and the free man, the male and the female have equal standing before the Father? And it is this. It's found in 2 Corinthians 5.21. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That verse speaks of the great exchange, how through faith Christ takes our punishment and gives us his righteousness. That's the only basis that we have before God to make any kind of claim to heaven and to be children of God is is the righteousness that we have through Christ. The Jew who exercises faith in Christ has the righteousness of God by faith in Christ. The same with the Greek. The same with the slave. The same with the free man. The same with the male. The same with the female. The Lord doesn't make distinctions salvifically between men and women, between slaves and free men, between Jews and Greeks. And so Galatians 3.28 affirms the spiritual equality of all those who are in Christ Jesus, whether it be Jew, Greek, slave, free, male, or female. But notice that Galatians 3.28 does not erase distinctions between the Jew and the Greek, between the slave and the free, between, between male and female. Paul, again, didn't write, wasn't writing to, to, to unify one culture and to try to get the Jews to be Greeks or the Greeks Jews. He wasn't leading a revolt to try to end slavery. He wasn't trying to get the freemen to become slaves. Not in a cultural sense, anyway. Slaves of God, yes. And he wasn't trying to get males to act like females or females to act like males or to erase any distinctions between those. So, as we've been going through this uh, first, what I call first premise, we need to understand that God gives men and women equal value. And that's true in creation as we look at that in the Old Testament. It's also true salvifically in salvation as we look at the New Testament. And so because men and women have equal value, the debate about who should preach to the church is is, uh, not a debate about value. I repeat that. The debate about who should preach in the church is not a debate about value. Just because if we take the position that, that men are called to preach does not make them of more value than women. Right? And by the same token, if you take the position that women should not preach does not demean or devalue the place that God has given women. So premise one is that God gives men and women equal value. Let's look at premise two. Premise two is that God's design includes both men and women. This is obvious to us who hold to the scriptures, but it's not so obvious anymore to our culture. God's design includes both men and women. See, our culture is bought off on the lie of evolution, and because they bought off on the lie of evolution, and indeed many Christians have bought off on the lie of uh, evolution, uh, they believe that men and women are cosmic accidents, so to speak. But we don't view life that way. We don't view it that way because the scriptures tell us otherwise. 
The scriptures tell us that God created both men and women. Genesis 1.27 tells us that God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. So you see the scriptures clearly declare that, that God created binary sex. There aren't others. There's not a multiple. There's not a rainbow of them. There are two. If you don't like that, argue with God. God created male and female. God, the omnipotent one, who could have created us any way that he wanted to. He could have created us as kind of self-replicating creatures, not needing at all male or female. He could have done that. But he chose to create two categories of human beings that would be reliant on one another, who would need one another, and yet could not replace one another. He created both male and female, and he created only male and female. He created both male and female, and the differences between male and female, these these are not by accident. These are intentional. God is is the all-wise, omniscient one who designed the smallest intricacies of our bodies. We are made either male or female down to the very fabric of our DNA. So being, ma- being made male or female is not just a, uh, I should say being male or female is not just a cultural construction. Being male or female is not just a matter of physical body parts that are different that you can see. You can lop off or sew on body parts, but that doesn't change your sex. A person created to be a man will always be a man, even if he spends his whole life trying to look like and act like a woman. God has created our bodies beautifully, and He knows best how to fit all these things together wonderfully for the good of His creation and for His glory. So God created, we affirm that God created both men and women. And we affirm that God created men and women differently, and He did this by design. I'd like you to turn to Genesis chapter 2 with me, because I want to read an extended portion of the Scripture, and I want you to, to remind us of God's grand design in creation. Genesis chapter 2, I'll begin at verse 15. Then the Lord God took the man and put him into the garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From the tree, from any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of the good and evil. You shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. Out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the cattle and to the birds of the sky, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper suitable for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. Then he took one of his ribs and closed the flesh at that place. The Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. 
She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And, and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now, there's important observations that are pertinent to our discussion this morning. One is that God created man first. Again, we're not talking about the issue of superiority. Uh, Being chronologically first does not provide man any um, superiority or any greater importance than woman. But God did create man first. God gave man the responsibility of cultivating and keeping the garden prior to the creation of woman. So he had that responsibility, indicating that he was seen as the leader and the head. And all this was done prior to the fall. We also need to see that God created Eve to be a helper suitable for him, or some translations have corresponding to him. Eve was created to be Adam's helper. Eve was created to follow Adam's leadership and assist him in his role of caring for the garden. Eve was created to be Adam's companion. Remember, no no animal was suitable for that. God created woman for Adam's companionship. Eve was created to conceive and to give birth to children. All of this screams of God's design and how these two first human beings were designed intricately by God to fulfill His design that they are equal and yet distinct. They they have separate uh, functions and roles within God's design. And again, I'll just remind you, all of this was prior to the fall. And prior to the fall, in the sixth day of creation, God saw all that he had created and declared it what? Very good. We know that from Genesis 1.31. At the end of every day, God looked at what he saw, looked at what he created, and he said, it's, it's good. Right? That's a moral declaration by God. It's not just that it's well-designed. It's not that it's just it's beautiful. It's, a, it's morally good. At the end of the sixth day, God said, looked at all that he had created, including man and woman, male and female, and declared that it was very good. So any kind of uh, distinctions between men and women, the existence of men and women, and their differences, we need, to, we need to embrace that as very good. It's part of God's design. And so we affirm that God's design of men and women is intentional, strategic, and very good. We reject any kind of teaching which denigrates God's grand design for the family. And yes, this is a family. Even before the children come along, they're a family. We reject any teaching which tries to whitewash away the clear and beautiful distinctions that God has established between men and women. Being male or female is not a social construction. Being male or female is not something you, you, you can choose or your parents can choose for you. You are sovereignly and lovingly made, either male or female, uh, by our sovereign God, who has sovereignly and lovingly called you to fulfill His calling for your life as a male or female. And the distinctions of creation, including the distinctions between male and female, are very good. And again, this includes God creating Adam first, making him the head, making Eve chronologically second, not inferior to him, 
but his follower, his companion, his helper, to help him carry out his task. So premise one, remember, God gives men and women equal value. Premise two, God's design includes both men and women. If God had wanted to create a unisex, he could have done that. But he didn't. He chose in his grand design to create both men and women. Premise three is this. God's design for for men and women has been and is under attack ever since Satan's temptation of Eve. Satan began his attack on God's design for men and women uh, in Genesis. It's, it's recorded for us in Genesis, is what I should say. If you're in Genesis, so uh, we read Genesis 2. Look at Genesis 3. I'm going to read to you the first uh, 21 verses of Genesis 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden? The woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat. But from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. The serpent said to the woman, You surely will not die. For God knows that in the day you eat, From it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and it was a delight to the eyes, and the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate. She gave also to her husband with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the, in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me from the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you more than all cattle, and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go, and dust you will eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. To the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you will bring forth children, yet your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Then Adam said, Then to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you. And you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Now, Again, there's, just, there's tons in here that we could uh, look at, but I just want to make a few observations from this text. And that, just listen and look at the scriptures to see if these things are so. First of all, 
we see that Satan bypassed the head of the family, Adam, to directly tempt Eve. Adam was the rightful head and leader of that first family. But Satan did not go to to Adam to provide that temptation. He went directly to Eve. Adam, seemingly, though we have very little details, but we can presume this, Adam seemingly made no attempt to fulfill his role as leader to protect Eve from such a temptation. He seems to have known that that, uh, Satan was talking with Eve. Eve seemingly made no attempt to line up behind her husband and to seek his help in answering Satan's questions. You may have never thought about it, but Eve exercises great independence in making this decision to, to basically adopt the suggestions of Satan. She doesn't consult with her husband. She makes the decision. It is a, an act of independence on her own part. Eve was deceived by the tempter. The scriptures are clear about that. She was deceived. And she was tricked into disobeying God. She was was deceived about God's own character and and why he had prohibited certain things uh, from them. As the scriptures tell us, Adam's later listened to to Eve's words. See, whereas, whereas Eve was deceived into disobeying God, Here, Adam intentionally disobeyed God. He listened to his wife's words. He knew what God clearly said. He wasn't deceived. He wanted to be like his wife. And so rather than being a spiritual leader, he became a follower. And so Satan successfully attacked God's design for marriage by getting the woman to act independent of her husband and the man to act independent of God. And notice that part of the consequences of her sin uh, includes a desire to, f- to further reject God's design for marriage. In Genesis 3.16, he, uh, God tells Eve, your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. That means her, her desire would be to rule, to, to rule really over her husband, but he would rule over her and not over her in a nice way either because of the impact of sin. So let's just think about some of the implications of this. Since, ever since Satan's first attack upon God's design for men and women, he has been committing or continuing the, the attack even up to this day. And just like he tempted Eve to second-guess the goodness of God's design, he's tempting people today to second-guess the goodness of God's design. Satan wants to deceive people to, into rejecting the goodness of God's design for them today, to think that somehow God's didn't know what he was doing. Satan tempts us into thinking, like Eve, that we know better than God, that we can develop a better plan than God, or that somehow we can improve upon God's design and plan. And he tempts people today, particularly women, into thinking that that they're not going to lead a fulfilling life unless they do assume the role that God has given men. Notice that lie? How in the world today, the culture is saying that women are, are, can do everything that, that men can do, but they can't be real women unless they do everything that man does. Right? To me, that's just shouts of a very insecure femininity. Right? They're just very insecure. So to declare their femininity, they have to do everything that, that men do. That, that just 
That just doesn't make sense. It just shows how deceived they are by the liar, by the father of lies, and that is by Satan. So, premise one, God gives men and women equal value. Premise two, God's design includes both men and women. Premise three, God's design for men and women are under attack. All that forms kind of the foundation that we need to keep in mind as we look at the question of of why must we have... uh, Biblically qualified men preach the scriptures to us as a church. Now, I'm going to introduce premise four for you. I, I decided that um, because of the attacks upon these particular verses, uh, that I did not want to cover them quickly. So I'm going to uh, highlight some verses for you, and then next week we're going to come back and actually dig into detail because. I'm going to dig into detail, explain what they mean, but I also want to deal with objections because, um, you know, it's, it's, uh, people twist the scriptures. I said on one side or the other, they're twisting scriptures into their own fashion to support their own desires to make themselves feel good as part of Satan's plan. Um, so we'll deal with that next week. I, you know, keep in mind that very few cults begin by saying, hey, I'm a cult, come join me. What do they do? They take the scriptures and they twist the words, and they claim biblical support for their views, and they lead people astray. So it's important that we take the time to look at those passages next week, clearly explain what they do mean, but also look at some of the arguments and some of the objections to those views so that you will be well-armed and forewarned and protected against the schemes of Satan. So these I'm just going to highlight for you. So premise four is this. It really gets us into the core of answering the question. God's design for his church incorporates male and female distinctives. It's very much like the family. God's design for his church incorporates male and female distinctives. That's the premise, and where is the biblical support for that? Well, first, God has designed elders to do the work of preaching and teaching. That's very clear. Now, 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 17 tells us the elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. So that honor, that double honor, includes support, and the surrounding context goes on to talk about that. But here's what I want you to take away from that, that it's the elders who are called to do the hard work of preaching and teaching. Whether we land up, whether we land at a, at a, at a place where women, where we say women can preach and teach to the church, whether they can't, this is clear, that elders are called to do the work of preaching and teaching. So if women are allowed to preach and teach, then you would have to say that women could be elders. Because elders are clearly the, the leaders in the church who are called to do the work of preaching and teaching. God has given pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry. It's just absolutely clear. So God has designed elders to do the work of preaching and teaching. Secondly, God has mandated that biblically qualified men be elders. And we're going to look at this from 1 Timothy chapter 3. Um, And again, we'll get into the details of this next week, but I'm going to read it uh, to you for food for thought. 1 Timothy chapter 3 says, It is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. 
An overseer, then, must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? And not a new convert, so that he will not become conceited and fall into condemnation incurred by the devil. And he must have a good reputation with those outside the church, so that he will not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Deacons, likewise, must be men of dignity, not double-tongued, or addicted to much wine, or fond of sordid gain, but holding to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. These men must also first be tested. Then let them serve as deacons if they are beyond reproach. Women must likewise be dignified, not malicious gossips, but temperate, faithful in all things. Deacons must be husbands of only one wife and good managers of their children and their own households. For those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a high standing and great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Paul adds this, I am writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long, but in case I am delayed, I write, I, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. So, God has mandated that biblically qualified men be elders and deacons. And again, we'll, we'll wrestle with that text in detail more. God has mandated, in fact, that women not teach and preach the church. This is a very controversial passage, but just before Paul gave the instructions about men, about the biblical qualifications of elders, in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 11 to 15, form um, one of the, probably the most controversial passages in this whole issue of whether women are called to preach and teach or not. It's also one of the most twisted passages of scripture that I have seen in a long time as you wrestle with what the what churches um, are saying about this and what um, people are saying about this, both men and women. Paul says this in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 11. He says, A woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness, but I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. For it was Adam who was first created and then Eve, and it was not Adam who was deceived But the woman, being deceived, fell into transgression. But women will be preserved through bearing of children if they continue in faith and love and sanctity with self-restraint. So again, we will delve into that passage, uh, doing our best to explain what it means. Even even one of the most uh, difficult passages uh, to deal with, that is verse 15. What does that mean in that context? We'll look at that next week, as well as the objections and like thinking through the implications, like what, is this, what does this mean for our church? Uh, we have a church full of godly women who want to obey God. So what does this mean for you? Like you want to obey God. So my goal is to help provide guidance and direction as to what it means, what it doesn't mean, um, so that uh, you can obey the Lord your God and honor him in the roles that he has called you to. So, so remember that the Premise one, God gives men and women equal value. This isn't a discussion about value or superiority. Premise two, God's design includes both men and women. 
Premise three, God's design for men and women is under attack. Satan and our world uh, rages against God. We need not be ignorant of this. And premise four, God's design for his church incorporates both male and female distinctives. He is using us both. And spiritual giftedness doesn't override that. And we'll look at all that next week. Now, remember that God is our creator. And he's made us. We're his design. But we want to turn that around. We want to make God in our own design, right? Isn't that what our world does? It takes God the creator, and instead of embracing him as creator, it turns themselves into gods and creates a god of their own liking. How twisted is our society and our own thinking before Christ? While embracing our equality as men and women of Christ, we must be careful not to erase the God-given distinctions between men and women that God intends to complement one another. We must stand guard against the schemes of the devil to trick us into jettisoning God's design for his church, in particular how he desires to, to feed his church. I mean, just think about it. It's just common sense. Many of you are sports fans, so think about a football team. I mean, how many quarterbacks are there? Well, there's only one allowed on the field at a time. Yeah, you can have backup quarterbacks. But how, how many are there? But what if the whole team were quarterbacks? What if you had a whole team of quarterbacks? How good would that team be? Not very good. Not at all. I mean, okay, this is going to date me a while back, but I remember one of the best quarterbacks that I can remember, um, Dan Marino, went to the Dolphins. He was an outstanding quarterback. And what did he do there? Oh, he had good games, but did he ever win a Super Bowl? No. Why? Because his team... He, he was outstanding. A good quarterback couldn't even take the whole team there. So, it, same goes, you could use the analogy of the Cleveland Cavaliers. Oops, I said it. Even LeBron, right, by himself, can't take the team to the championship. We can take him to there, but he can't win it. Right? That, that was proven. Well, what's the point? That a team needs different people with different skills and different complements. And God has designed the church in a very similar way. But, but Satan is attacking that design. Satan wants us to jettison that design and just to, to throw it away as, as meaningless. That we have to be, in order to be relevant, in order to, be, um, to have lives that are of worth and value, we must just jettison God's design. That's Satan's lie. And Satan's attack upon God's design for the church is nothing new. So back in 1987, pastors and and believers who wanted to be faithful to God's word sounded an alarm to the church about the creeping and constant pressure on the church to conform to the world's design for men and women, particularly in leadership to the church. These leaders banded together to issue a joint statement called the Danvers Statement. This statement was to help guide the church away from this Conformity to the world so that the church could be transformed by God's word. Their statement is a helpful clarion call even to today. And so in conclusion of my sermon, I just want to read this to you. The Danvers statement summarizes the need for the Council on Biblical Manhood and Womanhood and serves as an overview of our core beliefs. This statement was prepared by several evangelical leaders at a meeting in Danvers, Massachusetts in December of 1987. It was first published in November of 1988 in Wheaton, Illinois. It's divided into two sections. They give a rationale for their statements, and then they provide affirmations. 
Here's the rationale. We have been moved in our purpose by the following contemporary developments, which we observe with deep concern. The widespread uncertainty and confusion in our culture regarding the complementary differences between masculinity and femininity. The tragic effects of this confusion in unraveling the fabric of marriage woven by God out of the beautiful and diverse strands of manhood and womanhood. The increasing promotion given to feminist egalitarianism and accompanying distortions of, of neglect of the glad harmony portrayed in scripture between the loving humble leadership of redeemed husbands and the intelligent, willing support of that leadership by redeemed wives. The widespread ambivalence regarding the values of motherhood, vocational homemaking, and the many ministries historically performed by women. The growing claims of legitimacy for sexual relationships, which have biblically and historically been considered illicit or perverse, and the increase in pornographic portrayal of human sexuality the upsurge of physical and emotional abuse in the family, the emergence of roles for men and women in the church leadership that do not conform to biblical teaching but backfire in the crippling of, biblical, of biblically faithful witness, the increasing prevalence and acceptance of hermeneutical oddities devised to reinterpret apparently plain meanings of biblical text. The consequent threat to biblical authority as the clarity of Scripture is jeopardized and the accessibility of its meaning to ordinary people is withdrawn into the restricted realm of technical ingenuity. And behind all this, the apparent accommodation of some within the church to the spirit of the age at the expense of winsome, radical, biblical authenticity, which in the power of the Holy Spirit may reform rather than reflect our ailing culture. With, the, with that as the background, here are their affirmations. So based on our understanding of biblical teachings, we affirm the following. One, both Adam and Eve were created in God's image, equal before God as persons, distinct in their manhood and womanhood. Two, distinctions in masculine and feminine roles are ordained by God as part of the created order and should find an echo in every human heart. Three, Adam's leadership, or sorry, Adam's headship in marriage was established by God before the fall and was not a result of sin. Four, the fall introduced distortions into the relationships between men and women. In the home, the husband's loving husband headship tends to be replaced by domination or passivity. The wife's intelligent, willing submission tends to be replaced by usurpation or servility. In the church, sin includes men. In the church, sin inclines men toward a worldly love of power or an abdication of spiritual responsibility and inclines women to resist limitations on their roles or to neglect the use of their gifts in appropriate ministries. Five, the Old Testament as well as the New Testament manifests the equally high value and dignity by which God attached the roles of both men and women Both Old and New Testaments also affirm the principle of male headship in the family and in the covenant community. Six, redemption in Christ aims at at removing the distortions introduced by the curse. In the family, husbands should forsake harsh or selfish leadership and grow in love and care for their wives. Wives should forsake resistance to their husband's authority and grow in willing, joyful submission to their husband's leadership. In the church, redemption in Christ gives men and women an equal share in the blessings of salvation. Nevertheless, some governing and teaching roles within the church are restricted 
to men. In all life, Christ is the supreme authority and guide for men and women, so that no earthly submission, domestic, religious, or civil, ever implies a mandate to follow a human authority into sin. Both men and women, in both men and women, a heartfelt sense of call to ministry should never be used to set aside biblical criteria for particular ministries. Rather, biblical teaching should remain the authority for testing our subjective discernment of God's will. And nine, with half of the world's population outside the reach of in indigenous evangelism, uh, evangelicalism, sorry, indigenous evangelism, with countless other lost people in those societies who have heard the par- who, who have heard the gospel, with stresses and miseries of sickness, malnutrition, homelessness, illiteracy, ignorance, aging, addiction, crime, incarceration, uh, neurosis, and loneliness, no man or woman who feels a passion from God to make his grace known in the world and deed never live without a fulfilling ministry for the glory of Christ and the good of this fallen world. We are convinced that a denial or neglect of these principles will lead to an increasingly destructive consequences for our families, our churches, and the culture at large. You can uh, read that for yourself. It's called the Danvers Statement. Uh, you can find it online at uh, the Biblical uh, Council for Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. So it's a clarion call for us to embrace uh, the Lord's design and really to guard against the uh, pressure that the world is putting on us to conform to their standards. May God give us a clear understanding of his trustworthy word and the courage to stand on it. Let's pray together. Our Lord God, we um, thank you for leaving us with your truth and for not leaving us as orphans to flounder our own way because we would not have found you. We thank you that you've given us a word which is clear. Yes, there are some things which are difficult to understand, and there are many things that, while clear to understand, are difficult for us to embrace. But by the Spirit who lives within us, who caused us to be born again, not of seed from below, but of seed from above, Lord, you empower transformation of our lives, of our thinking, and everything, Lord, that uh, we're involved with. You transform the whole person to conform to your will, to conform to the person of Christ our Lord. Please help us, Lord God, to be um, voices pointing people to your truth. It's not popular today. We understand that. We know that. But we need your help to be, as it will, um, prophetic voices calling this world to repentance and to embrace God's design, not only for men and women's roles in the family, but also within the church. It's in your name we pray. Amen.